Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Given the strange and turbulent times that we are living through, Kurt and I decided to reach out to some of our favorite behavioral science researchers and practitioners to get their take on the novel coronavirus pandemic that is shaking the world. These special edition episodes will explore a variety of different aspects of the crisis and our response to each of those aspects through a behavioral lens. We know that you may feel overwhelmed by the crisis already. It seems every news story, every social media thread, every phone conversation that we have is focused on some aspect of the pandemic right now. While the news and updated information are essential, we're going to take a different tact. We want to try to understand the science behind our reactions and our behaviors and how science can help us cope and move beyond the current crisis. In each episode, we talk with a different behavioral science expert and get their best thinking on an aspect of the crisis. So sit back, take a deep breath, and listen to our special series on behavioral science and the coronavirus pandemic. Our guest for the special edition podcast is Annie Duke. Annie is an author, corporate speaker, and consultant in the decision-making space. In 2018, Annie's first book for general audiences, Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts, quickly became a national bestseller, and it landed on our Behavioral Grooves Top 10 Books for 2018. It sure did. And as a former professional poker player, Annie won a World Series of Poker bracelet for it. And she is the only woman to have won a World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions and an NBC National Poker Heads Up Championship. Pretty remarkable. Uh, She retired from the game in 2012. So, you know, she's kind of moved on from that. But prior to becoming a professional player, Annie was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship to study cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Annie is the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit whose mission to improve lives by empowering students through decision skills education. She is also a member of the National Board of After School All-Stars and the Board of Directors of the Franklin Institute. This was Annie's third time on Behavior Grooves. Yay! You can hear her in episode 31 and our 100th episode spectacular. And over the years that we've known Annie, we've developed a friendship with her. You'll be able to hear that in this episode as the dialogue is more conversational in nature. We were three friends sitting around and talking about this crisis. So without further ado, here's Annie Duke. You know, that there is something that we do have a little bit of control over, which is the death rate, which yeah. I know sounds a little bit weird because, well, the, the, you know, the virus is as deadly as it, the virus is, except that we don't live in six, the 1600s where yeah. the virus is just going to kill as, because we can do stuff to make it so that the virus doesn't kill you. Yeah. So just simple things like if your fever is too high, we can drop fluids for you. You know, if, we can we can give you oxygen support. We can put you on a respirator. You, yep. right, yeah. All of these things that can make it so that a virus that might otherwise be killing five percent of the population is killing less than one percent of the population. Yeah. And what they're seeing now is that in South Korea, which was prepared, is doing massive testing. Yeah. So they can quarantine off the people who have it. And they're keeping, you know, that they're they're reducing the curve, right? Like they, they're keeping you below critical capacity. That the it looks like the it looks like it's about 06 percent ish, yeah. In terms of the death rate, 
whereas it looks like Italy is going to converge at about 4.4%. Well, that's still significantly higher than just regular flu influenza. Well, of, of course, but if you look at, you know, I'm thinking about that toggle of like, do you keep the medical system underwhelmed or overwhelmed? Yeah. And when you have a medical system that can handle the capacity, it's still much worse than the flu, but you're talking about 0.6%. Versus. If you have a versus 4.4%. So this is something that is very frustrating to me is that I think that people People don't understand that when you have a when you're sort of modeling stuff that there's a whole bunch of different things that you can put into the model. For example, do you smoke? Right? Like the, yeah. these are all things where if somebody says, okay, the numbers out of out of South Korea are 0.6, that doesn't mean that it's 0.6 for you, right. and it doesn't mean that it's 0.6 under all circumstances. Yeah. What it means is that at least in the case of South Korea, it's 0.6 under the best circum. Like if you have the best circumstances occurring, things are as good as they're going to get today it's at 0.6 yeah right so you know i you know i there's just all sorts of stuff and then now of course what we're starting to see out of america is that millennials aren't so safe and i think there's a variety of reasons for that uh that make americans a little bit different than other people one of the and again none of the some of there's a lot of uncertainty around any of these Mm -hmm. things because you know who knows but one of the things that they think they might be seeing is that if your BMI is over 25, mm. that that's actually a risk factor. And we know that I think you maybe one of you can look this up while we're talking, but I think it might be 70% of Americans have a BMI over 25. I'm not, I'm, that might be wrong, but I think it's something like that. Um, so Americans happen to be have higher BMIs than, than kind of the rest of the world in the same way that Italians smoke a lot more than the rest of the world, which is of course, another risk factor. Yeah. Chinese too. So that's, you know, it's one of the, uh, you know, actually the, a doctor friend of mine responded back and was like, this was, you know, a bunch of crap on from that thing. And he's like, Chinese smoke, you know, every, every Chinese smokes and different things. And I'm going, okay, that adds to that, that, that fatality factor and probably a little bit to the, the hospitalization rates. But all right, take that into account. It still is a math. Cut right. those numbers in half. Cut 70,000 down to 30,000. Ask him what his BMI is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Because apparently that really matters. And there's a whole bunch of stuff like they're looking at like men seem to be more vulnerable than women, but that yeah. could be related to smoking because more men smoke than women smoke. Um, you know, it's just like a, none of this is particularly clear. And and again, you know, looking at the age differences. So we, we're, we, you know, at the last I saw, you know, above eighty, it was it was still at fourteen percent worldwide. Oh, it's bad. It's you, you it, know, yeah. I mean, that's, and, that's playing Russian right. roulette. You know, it, it's and like, I think they said that forty percent, forty percent of the hospitalizations are people under the age of fifty-four. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's. The CDC says that 71.9% of Americans over 20 are obese, which would be 30, 30 BMI. So yeah, there you go. Peter Adia, I don't know if you've, you've heard of him, mm-hmm. Dr. Peter Adia, but he's been doing I was on this. his podcast. Oh, that's right. Oh. I, I saw that. He did a, he did the, he's doing this video series, which has been one of the best that I've seen because he gets into the science behind it. And, and again, he is such a, I, uh, you know, he thinks then he's like, oh, well, this is not quite sure, but this is the, th-, you know, he, he, he talks about the, the potentials and, and different facets of this. And 
but yeah, it's been it's been really interesting to see how this all goes. So, I, I, thank you for pointing that out. I'm going to go check him out because I I definitely like the way that he thinks. So. Yeah, he thinks he is a good. Again, just the the way that he works through things is really interesting to me. So, there, there's a few things that have been you know some mix of frustrating and you know exposing like the need for actually. Uh, communicating properly to people. So some, some mix between the two. And and there was a few, I think, I think one is that um, I think this is just a really good example of the fact that, that people kind of really don't understand hedging very well. And not only do they not understand hedging, but it's particularly hard to get people to put hedges in place when you're asking them to do something where the quality of the decision to hedge isn't already baked in. Mm. So, so let me, let me explain it. And I actually talk about this in in my book that's going to come out in September. So here's uh, just for people who don't know, like, here's a simple hedge. Like I I buy homeowners insurance, which includes fire insurance. It costs me some small amount of money. Uh, But what I'm really trying to do is affect, protect myself from the impact of the downside because my risk, I've got this risk, which is exposure to this, this sort of the left tail, let's call it the left tail. Uh, where sitting in that left tail is my house burns down. Mm-hmm. And if I understand that under circumstances where my house burns down, this is going to have a huge impact on my financial life. I can pay something now in order to mitigate that risk and mitigate the impact of the uh, impact of the downside. So it's a way to de-risk. So the interesting thing about homeowners insurance is that, uh, and this is true of all hedges, is that you're trying you're trying to mitigate the impact of the downside, right? So you're trying to mitigate the risk. It's going to cost you something to do it. Mm. And this is the really interesting thing about it. You hope you never have to use it. Mm. So this is true of all hedges, right? So you're crossing your fingers, like I'm going to put this hedge in place, but I never, ever want to have to use it. So when you're talking about something like homeowner's insurance, where hopefully you end up never having to use it, people don't do any resulting in that case, where when you don't use it, they don't regret having had the insurance. And I think the reason why is that uh, it's a pretty status quo decision at this point, right? Like there's just a lot of consensus around this is the sensible thing to do. Uh, and in fact, if you have a mortgage, the mortgage, the the lender is going to force it on you. Yep. Um, and so I think people are just like, okay, we really understand like this is clearly a good decision because like it's something everybody's doing and the, and the mortgage company is making me do it. But when you do something that's a, when you're hedging in a way that that where the quality of that that decision isn't baked in, when you don't actually have to use the hedge, and by use I mean like call the insurance company because obviously the minute that you put the hedge on, you're using it. Mm-hmm. But let's use let's use the word use in sort of the colloquial sense as opposed to the technical sense. Then what happens is people regret having had the hedge in the first place. They feel stupid for having it. So the example that I would give there would be like. I want to have an outdoor wedding. I'm really concerned about the risk of bad weather. I absolutely don't want to make the choice to go move the wedding inside because what I want is an outdoor wedding. And so I pay to have a tent set up. Mm -hmm. This is a hedge. Um, And then when the weather's great, I regret having bought the tent. Yeah. Same thing with uh, I've got to get to a flight. I cannot miss it. I leave an extra hour in order to get there on time just in case there's traffic. So I'm trying to mitigate that. And if I get to the airport and there was no traffic, every single person on the planet regrets, regrets having left early. They're like, why did I do that? That was so stupid, right? So this is kind of this paradox around 
hedging. So I found this happening with people over and over again when it came to this. So so just in terms of the social distancing, right? Like you're going to tap elbows and people are like, really? Do you think so? Like, come on, I'm a handshaker. Yeah. Because they don't want to look stupid for having done these things. Like I was going to restaurants last week or, you know, before I put, went into lockdown on Thursday and I've got my Lysol wipes with me and I'm wiping everything down and yeah. people are looking at me like I'm insane. And the, I think the reason is that it's like nobody wants to look dumb. Nobody wants to be like, I, I spent a couple of weeks wiping everything down with Lysol and it turned out this was nothing. And boy, do I feel stupid. Yeah. I was tapping elbows with people and man, now I feel like an idiot. I canceled my vacation and now I feel really dumb. And I feel like until the world is so clearly telling you that it's a good decision, which is too late. People are very reluctant to do these things where they feel like if there's a whole range of outcomes that occur, some of which where where you're re- where that hedge really gets exercised and some where it's just sitting in the background mitigating the risk and maybe you don't really see it. And we know there's this range of outcomes between like, you know, 2 million people are dead and whatever. And in the case where it turns out not to be so bad, people will feel stupid. And so therefore they don't put the hedge in place until it's too late and it's obvious. So I think that's on a personal level. But then what was very frustrating to me was I feel like on a governmental level, uh, I was at a conference, I think it was three weeks ago. It was the last conference I went to. Okay. Uh, It was about three weeks ago. And they asked me like, what's the single thing that you wish had been, had been done differently. And I said, tests being manufactured in January. Mm-hmm. Just start stockpiling tests because we could see very clearly what was happening in China by that point. By the end, when was the first case in Italy? I think it was right around the beginning of February, maybe. I believe so. I'm not sure exactly. Um, I don't remember. Yeah. But you could start to see that it was spreading. We already, by this point, China wasn't able to cover it up. And you know we could kind of see what was going on there. And certainly by mid-January and definitely by late January. We, we could start to see what was going on. Because I remember I did go to a conference in January and I joked to people, that was when I got sick with what I still had the cough from. And I joked to people, don't worry, it's not coronavirus. And I remember making that joke, which I kind of regret now because it feels a little insensitive to me now. But at that point, it was still so abstract. Yeah. But 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 at that point, so so we know I know January 4th, it was definitely, January 24th, it was for sure a thing. It was enough of a thing for me to be thinking about it, right? And, and, and if the government would have had experts that were, you know, modeling this out and looking at this and saying, yes, this could be, again, it was, uh, you know, there, there isn't enough data out there to actually say for sure, but to your point of hedging, right? From a, from the U.S. perspective, building out test kits at that, at, at, it's, a, at it's a big such a piece small cost. It's such a small cost and compared to GDP, whatever. And the interesting thing about those test kits is it was almost sure that they wouldn't not go to use. Yeah. Because even if we manage to contain it here, other countries were going to need those test kits and it behooves us to make sure it's being controlled in other countries regardless, right? Yeah. You know, what, one thing I think about with hedging is that sometimes the cost of a hedge is so small that you're essentially in a free roll situation, what I would call yeah. a near free roll situation. So I, I think free roll is a word that's kind of a little bit confined to gambling. Uh, hopefully after my book, it'll become more widespread. Well, um, you've talked about it with us before. So yeah, there you go. Maybe yeah, everybody exactly. listens to behavioral groups. Right. right. So 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 just to reiterate what a free roll is, um, when you're thinking about the range of possible outcomes, there are certain decisions that you can make that um, 
where the downside is really, really, really limited, but the upside potential is huge. So the way that you can think about a free roll is just ask yourself this question. If this works out in the worst way possible, am I any worse off than I was before? So a simple example of a free roll is uh, you see a house that's out of your price range because realtors do that. Should you make an offer on the house that's within your price range? A lot of people won't do it mm-hmm. because they're like, no, because they're not going to offer it. They're not going to accept it anyway, so on and so forth. And they don't want to be embarrassed or think that the homeowners were insulted or, you know, or whatever. But of course you should offer on it because if they don't accept, you're literally no worse off than you were before you made the offer. Cost yeah. you a tiny bit of time. Yeah. So, and then you can also have negative free rolls. Obviously I would put like speeding in that category. Like you're going to save three minutes, but you might die. So that would be a <laughs> negative free roll or kill somebody else yeah. or kill somebody else. Well, well, are there, are there differences between, you know, some of these have very specific calculative results or, or impacts on our lives. Some are more just social. I mean, you, you, you talked about some, some have to do with social norms, right? Right. You know, the, the whole, you know, you, elbowing versus a handshake. I might feel stupid from that, you know, from doing that, but there is, but it, it's hard for me to put the calculations together as to what the actual outcomes you know, might be? Well, I think that that sort of brings up, so so from a policy perspective, I would have to think that the policymakers would understand that the cost of producing kits is super low compared to the mitigating the downs, what, what you're going to gain from having done that. So I would put that in a near free roll category because if you compare the cost of producing all those kits to GDP or even say to our national debt, right? Right. Like it, it's essentially free. Like yeah. it's, it's basically free at which point it really does become a free roll, right? Like if we don't use them, who cares? We're not really worse off than we were before. If we do use them, boy, that's there. There's just like humongous upside associated with that. Um, in terms of what you're talking about, you know, I talk about I, this actually, this actually didn't make it into the new book because sadly a 30,000 word book turned into a 60,000 word book. But um, so, you know, at some point I had to cut some stuff, but that's all good because my editor is very happy that it ended up longer than we thought it was going to be. Okay. Um, and I also want to say you 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 helped me through like a very dark period where I couldn't kind of find the voice of the book. So thank you, you guys. Oh, you're, um, you're welcome. Because I did find the voice, and I know that you've read it in in the voice that I I managed to find, which frankly was my own voice, which was uh, great, by the way. How about that? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, and you guys were very clear. You know, I was trying to solve a problem, and I ended up becoming very regimented in the way that I was dealing with. You guys were very kind to point out, this doesn't sound like you. And I was like, okay, so perhaps I should make it sound like me. So that was all good. But at any rate, this this ended up in the on the cutting room floor. But one of the things that I like to think about is the interaction. So obviously, I'm like the resulting lady. So resulting doesn't occur, occur under all circumstances. Resulting occurs, there's an interaction between whether a decision is status quo or consensus Mm. versus innovative or non-consensus and whether you get resulting or not. So if we go to the beginning of thinking in bets, right? So we have Pete Carroll does this thing, passes the ball. Um, it's intercepted. I mean, well, Pete Carroll personally doesn't pass the ball, but whatever. He sends, um, the, he sends the play he, he, in. He makes, he he makes the, the call. He makes the choice, right. yeah. Uh, it's intercepted and the world comes down on him. Now, there's a, a consensus play there. The consensus play is to hand it off to Marshawn Lynch and run the ball. So that's the consensus play. The non-consensus play is what Pete Carroll did. Uh, Call a pass play. And now you notice when it turns out horribly, everybody's like, you're the biggest idiot ever. Now we know if that ball had gotten caught for a touchdown, if it had been complete, 
he would have been hailed as a genius. Okay, so you can see that you end up at these extreme reactions in a case where the play is unexpected. But let's take the expected play. So I'll do this thought experiment with you. So he hands the ball off to Marshawn Lynch, and Marshawn Lynch fails to score. And that's how they lose the game. Is he a genius or an idiot in that case? I don't think he's either. If he wins the game, handing it off to Marshawn Lynch, it's like he's a great coach. There's no like two years later talking about the play, the best play of Super Bowl history or something. Yeah. Whereas it, right, if he passes the ball and it's complete, then it's the, you know, two years later, three years later, it's the best play of Super Bowl history, but not if he wins by handing off to Marshawn Lynch, but the reverse is also true. So if he, if he hands it off to Marshawn Lynch and they lose that way, it, it actually rolls right off of Pete Carroll's shoulders and on to Bill Belichick. Mm-hmm. Bill Belichick's defense is great. The Patriots defense held. So what we can see is we can think about this two by two matrix now. If you have a status quo decision that works out well, it's like, good job. You know, like you went through a green light and you didn't get an accident. Yay, you. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, if you have a status quo decision or a consensus decision that works out poorly, it's like, yeah, that was really tough luck. Sorry. But it's not your fault. Like the Patriots were just too good. Like, what are you going to do? Right. So now if you have a non-status quo decision, a non-consensus, an innovative decision, something that's very unexpected and it works out in your favor, it's genius with 17 exclamation points. If you have an unexpected or non-status quo decision that turns out poorly, it's the Pete Carroll treatment. It's idiot with 17 exclamation points. Uh Now, what I think is really interesting about this is that we as decision makers know this. Yeah. So our decision making actually gets, we get into this very defensive crouch when we're making decisions to try to avoid being resulted upon. This has all sorts of implications for leadership, but we can talk about it in terms of just coronavirus today. Um, So what happens is that we will have a tendency to want to stay on the beaten path and not stray from it because we understand that if we stay on the beaten path, then we're not going to get blame for when it goes poorly. Now, you might say, yeah, but we don't get the chance at genius either but it's like we all know there's an asymmetry there Mm -hmm. right like we don't really getting the genius doesn't feel as good as getting the idiot feels bad lots of aversion aversion. yeah exactly so i think that we can see this 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 interacted i think really badly with what was happening with coronavirus because you're asking people to change what they normally do you're asking people to behave in ways that look kind of weird Mm-hmm. that aren't status quo. And it's very hard to get people to do that unless they feel like there's a lot of consensus that that decision is good. Because what they understand, what is very hard for people to understand is that when you're doing those behavior changes, you're thinking about the range of possible outcomes, right? So there's a yeah. whole set of outcomes that you can observe that, that are possible to observe, but there's only going to be one that you do observe. And if you don't give them certainty that the, the, those downside outcomes are going to be the one that they observe, it's very hard for them to do these things that are non-status quo because they're afraid that they're going to look like idiots. There was, and I don't know who said this, I believe it was one of the, one of the gentlemen from uh, the CDC was talking about, you know, if we do these things a week before the pandemic starts, you're seen as crazy. If you do them a week after the pandemic starts, you're seen as an idiot. 
Right. You know, and there's like this really short Because there's window. a shift, right? There's yeah. a shift in what's consensus now. Yeah. So what ha- what happens is that at some point, the numbers become big enough that you have certainty that the downside is being realized. You have certainty that you're observing the downside. Now, under those circumstances, you can now change. Now people will change their behavior because they understand there's no possibility anybody's going to say to them, that's really weird that you're carrying around a box of Lysol wipes and you have Purell all over your body. Or that you're not shaking my hand, that you're offering right. up an elbow. That you're- because you've, you've already realized the downside outcome. So you've taken the uncertainty out of the equation. The reason why we will we'll stay in the, in the status quo groove, we like won't climb out of that trench, is because of the uncertainty. Because it ter- could turn out great, it could turn out poorly. Mm. And what we're trying to do is protect ourselves against being told that we're dumb because it didn't turn out the way that our behavior would have protected us against. It's it's interesting. So last week I was in, I I flew down to business for in Chicago. And so it was, you know, a couple different companies meetings. And I was with a, a salesperson that was working with me. And when we were together, is like we were using the elbow to push the the you know elevator number and we were wiping things down and doing things. But once we got into the meetings, you know, and, and people are coming in and they're, you know, they're, they're offering their hands out at that point, right? Our, our behavior changed. It was like, oh, I better accept this because it's, right. it's a client. And you saw client. that happen with, do you remember the Rose Garden press conference with all of the people and Trump is putting his hand out to shake and everybody is shaking back except that one guy. Yeah. Remember that one guy was like, yo. Right. So he was willing to break the break the social norm. But that was really unusual. Yeah. Right. And and that's kind of the that that's sort of the problem that we get is are we willing to change our behavior if it turns out that that the behavior change was unnecessary? Mm. And by unnecessary, again, going back to the idea of hedging, that doesn't mean that that you shouldn't have had that hedge in place. It just means that your house didn't burn down. Right. Right. And that that's where we really kind of get into these. Th- there's all sorts of things that happen. So so I th- that's kind of the thing. Thing number one is that it's made me, you know, I've been thinking about these hedges and how does that interact with status quo versus non status quo expected versus unexpected. And, you know, if all of a sudden there was some like new type of insurance you could buy that like p- nobody had bought before and it was protecting against some very rare event that occurred. But mm-hmm. the rare event was ruined literally ruin people wouldn't buy it right away it would take a while for that to change it's it's actually the same problem that um coaches in the nfl have had in the past uh, or coaches in the nhl have had so in the nhl it's when do you pull the goalie Mm -hmm. Uh, and in, in the NFL is, do you go for it on fourth down? Right. And they're still pretty bad, but like take five years ago when they were horrible at it. Um, what you saw was that the consensus decision was punt. Yeah. So regardless of what the analytics were telling anybody, because, because, because the, the people in the stands can't see the analytics, they can't see the range of possible outcomes and what they can't see the win probability moving up or down. They just can't see that. All they can see is either uh, you gained the yards that you needed or they just took the ball over on the 40 and the other team got to score a touchdown. So all they can see is the outcome that actually occurs, the one that you actually observe. And so what happened was that they knew that if they failed by punting, 
nobody was going to say boo. Right. But if they failed by doing something that was really against the grain, certainly five years ago, very against the grain by going for it on fourth down, then it was going to be like, you're fired, right? You're an idiot. And this has been the problem, I think, with Corona and sort of putting these things in place. What's interesting with the NFL is even though they're getting better, you can still see the influence of this problem, this this two by two matrix, because what happens is that when they don't go for it, they usually have a variety of things that tell you why they, they it's, there's good narrative to tell consensus wasn't going our way. The running back wasn't whatever, mm-hmm. you know, quarterback. And it, 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 all it's, of it justifying all, the social norms, basically. Right, right, which is to go back to punting, right? It's to get you back to what's more status quo. What you never hear is, I know the analytics said we shouldn't do it, but. Yeah. So in, in NFL, NHL, all of those, you have the, you have the sport casters who then the and the journalists who write about things. And so their view of this is again, they're going to talk about that, right? If you if you go forward and forth and you miss it and then the other team scores, yeah. that's the talking point the next day, yeah. right? Yeah. In, in 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 government, there's also the pundits, right? And you get the 24 hour news stations. So it, it's that aspect as well. So they're they're looking at that consensus piece as as status quo. And like going out beyond that is again being brought to the front of people's attention much more so than say you or I doing something along that line where it's still hard enough for us, but we're not having that extra spotlight even put on it. So right, I, I completely agree, and I I think that 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 was the real shame of not having the testing kits in place mm-hmm. because if you're looking at what are the types of things that we're going to have to put in place, all of which are hedges against. 10 million people worldwide dying, right? Mm-hmm. They, they escalate depending on when you get the hedge in. So, you know, you can think about it this way. Like th- this is a simple way to do it. If you build a brand new house with great electric and you ask for insurance at that moment, that insurance is going to cost a lot less than if you ask me to insure your house when, it, when there's a flame that's already lit. Yeah. And you might be able to put it out or not. Right. Right. But now maybe the insurance initially would have cost you $50 a month. And now I'm going to ask you to pay me 80% of the value of the house or more, right? Like it depends. I've got to figure out like what's the probability that you can actually get this fire out at this point, right? Exactly. So as we get closer up on the actual thing that you're trying to hedge against occurring, like as we get more certainty around the downside, actually realizing the hedge is going to be more expensive. So we can think about that with coronavirus, right? If you can do some stuff early on, like test kits, those are relatively inexpensive. But if you don't get the, or social distancing, right? Just really putting out message about social distancing and and doing your darndest starting in January, right? As opposed to in March to say, stand six feet away from people. Like let's start having half the people come in and half work from home. And these things that are relatively low cost have half your workforce working from home is not that huge a cost. Um, but you can do some things that are lower cost. If you, if you allow the house to already be on fire, it becomes very expensive and it's shutting the economy down, which is where we actually ended up. So what I think is, so, so if you look at South Korea, of course we have, as you know, we have a tendency to believe, you know, it's the, the last disaster syndrome, right? But the reason why the last disaster syndrome matters is because we, we, when we're thinking about what the possible outcomes are and, and how things might go wrong, the way that things have gone in the 
pass, this is just status quo bias, we tend to, we tend to assign those higher, we think those are going to persist. So um, what I think is kind of interesting is that this country really wasn't affected by SARS. Yeah. And so we weren't, we weren't particularly like worried about like, oh, what if a coronavirus comes and gets us? But Asia was. Mm-hmm. They they had all of those things in place already, right? Like they they I think it was something that they have like twice as many or maybe a little bit more beds per capita than we do in terms of hospitals. Uh, certainly more respirators per the population. They were much quicker with testing. China aside, I'm talking about South Korea here. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because the the social you didn't have to go against the social tide because they'd already experienced SARS, and so. Yeah. So they were much more willing to get in there quickly with the cheaper hedge. Yeah. China has special fever um, rooms where, you know, when they go and they test and you, you get have a fever, you get sent specifically to a fever room where then you start doing testing. So it's separate from the rest of the hospital. It might be part of it, but it's a separate entrance. Everything else about it, it's all quarantined off. And then once you get, you know, diagnosed, you go to quarantine right away. And, And so they have those set up and in place. Right, and and, they, and there's a cost to those things. There is, there's a right? there's a definite cost to them. It's a, a hedge. Cost to those things. Right, exactly. Uh, but there's a reason why you're willing to pay that cost up front, right? Yeah. So that you're not going to the insurer and saying, "Well, the staircase is on fire. I think I can get it out." Yeah. <laughs> but how much do I have to pay right now to insure my house? Hey, right, just, uh, just for chance, you know. I got this little little fire going, but I, there's a there's an aspect of this though that is making decisions under uncertainty, right? Oh my and gosh! So well, that's the whole thing, isn't that it? That is the whole thing of this. But so, what can we do in order to help ourselves make better decisions in this situation, given all of the uncertainty that is out there? What what is it that that we, the listeners of of, of this podcast, that Tim and I can do to help us make better decisions? in this really weird and crazy time? Yeah, so I, I think in general, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying that that people really wanted a lot of certainty around the downside realizing mm-hmm. um, before you were really, really willing to make these kinds of changes where had people been much more comfortable with thinking about the future as a range of possible outcomes and how would you actually, uh, you know, ha- how, what would you have wanted to do? You can sort of imagine it sort of in a pre-mortem way, right? Like mm. if you knew that the virus was going to take hold, what would you have wanted to do two months ago that would have stopped this from happening? But that requires that you're acting on something that may never occur. So that's the issue with uncertainty. And, and obviously you're talking about a wide range of possible outcomes. And then in this particular case, there's lots of uncertainty piled onto that, which is that there's just a lot of information we don't know. So- mm. Uh, so even if it were the case that we 100% knew everything that we needed to know and we knew exactly what all the bins were, meaning, you know, here is the probability that 10 million people die, 5 million people die, 2 million people die, one person dies, you would still want to be thinking about, okay, so let's say that we knew that we hit the left tail, the, the worst case scenario. What now let's think back to why did that, that why did that occur? Mm-hmm. And when you think about why did that occur, some of in there is going to be things you didn't do. Yeah. Right. And then you do the the flip thing, which is a back cast, which is let's say we knew that the right tail was going to occur and very, very few people were going to die from this. What are the things that probably happened that made it so that we ended up in this position? And that's where you're going to see things like, well, you had testing ready and you had 
right? So now, now we can actually create a full picture of the way that we would want to act. But what it means is that you have to be willing to some percentage of the time have a warehouse full of unused test kits. With that, though, it, it, does it also come into, you know, this idea that this is a, a, a black swan event that, that, you know what, it's so outside of the norm that this is not in our realm of thinking about the potential. So back in January, yes, we saw it over in China. And there's this little bit, and I think some of the experts are probably there, but for us, you know, me as a, as a individual, as you said, SARS did not come over here to the United States. So don't have that experience. So it seems so distant to me that the idea of social distancing at that time, or even, even going through the exercise of saying, all right, this could be something isn't there. I mean, does that play into this as well? I mean, just the availability bias that we have for considering that this could even be a potential issue? Well, I, I, I think that it does. And, you know, there's going to be some individuals who kind, kind of can see what's going to come. But that's why it's really a policy question. Mm. Right. So if you, you have people who, who really understand how you would forecast these events and can be communicating much earlier, look, you as an individual can't create a warehouse full of test kits, right? That's, that's true. Not on you. So I think that, that that's really the issue. And, and what I see across all decision-making is kind of twofold. One, one and I think that it interacted here um, in a bad way. I think thing number one is that people are searching for a level of certainty that you cannot get in these circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. Even if the only influence were luck here, people would have trouble with it. But we also don't know a lot. So, so we've got, this is really sort of the maximum situation where, where you're just dealing with subjective probabilities. If we had perfect information, the probabilities would be objective. And we, mm-hmm. we could say like, okay, you know, this percentage of the time, five people are die, this percentage of the time, five million or people, people are going to die. And let's sort of do the cost benefit analysis and figure out what we can do to mitigate and so on and so forth. But in this particular case, we're dealing with subjective probabilities. And I think that people just really have trouble understanding how to make decisions under those circumstances. And what they want to do is get really sure. And I think that that's what you saw with people's behavior was that when they started seeing the exploding numbers, Mm -hmm. that was when they were like comfortable with being sure that yes, you should go into your house. And and I guess if you're on spring break, you're still not sure enough, but whatever. So as a society, I think number one is that we need to get people more comfortable with thinking that way, that the world is not deterministic in nature. And that a lot of times your most valuable resource is time. And any time that you're thinking about a decision, there's a trade-off between time and accuracy. Mm. M- mostly, not, not always, because some decisions are simple enough, but, uh, but for, for complex decisions. So this is different than, let, let me just say, it's different than a complicated decision. A complicated decision is a chess problem that's solvable. Mm-hmm. right? So that would be where you, you could actually know exactly what the bins look like. But when you're in subjective, the subjective world where there's lots of hidden information, it's complex, right? We need people to get better at understanding that when you're dealing with complex problems, that there's a real trade-off between time and accuracy, that you can take more time and maybe get yourself some more accuracy, right? Or you can sacrifice some accuracy in order to save time. And understanding that balance, when should you act quickly? When should you sort of stick around? And say, actually, I, I should take my time and I should try to, to, to see what the real answer is here depends on what that time is going to buy you. Mm. Because yeah. if you're not acting quickly enough, it actually changes what the range of possible outcomes is. Well, so, it changes how much that hedge costs. 
right? Exactly what you were it talking about. It changes how earlier. much the hedge costs, right? Because as you yeah. get closer up on it, the hedge costs a lot more. Yeah. So I think number, you know, you people need to be sort of be better at sort of balancing that those two things. Like how 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 valuable is the time to me? Yeah. And sometimes it's not. There's some decisions where you could linger on it for a year. Who cares? There's yeah. other decisions where you just better go and you're willing to sacrifice the accuracy in, or, in order to get there because the impact of not acting is just really high. Right. So I think that's number one is that we need to get people to understand that it's okay to decide when you're not sure. And sometimes it's actually very imperative to decide when you're not sure. That's number one. And then number two is that I think that part of the problem that as decision makers that we have is that the world that we observe is not the world that exists. Mm. So what we are looking at is not ground truth. So a very simple example of that is if I have a coin that's going to flip heads 50% of the time, I might happen to observe a world where it flips heads five times in a row. That mm -hmm. does not mean that ground truth is that that coin is 100% heads. Okay, so that's like a super simple example of this. So particularly with something like this, where we can sort of look at how ground truth doesn't comport with the observed world in two different ways with coronavirus. There's lots of other ways, but let's yeah. look at two ways. One is the number of cases that you see, because we're not testing 100% of the population, so you have to extrapolate. So when you see 15 cases there aren't 15 cases in America and not even close, right? Yep. We're probably talking about more than one order of magnitude, probably, probably more than that, right? Difference. So we don't really know what that number was at the point that there were 15 cases. The testing was very, very limited at that point. But, you know, some people were saying it might be 50,000 or 100,000 cases at the point that you saw 15. I don't actually know what the answer is. I just know it's a lot more than 15. Right. So that's one way where you can see ground truth is not comporting with the world you're observing. So I think at that point, most people were like, it's 15 cases. Like, I'm not mm -hmm. in danger. 15 cases out of 350 million, what are the chances I come in contact with someone who has this? So I think that's very hard for people to sort of understand. That's in the vertical sense, right? Like if, we, if I look at this moment in time and they're reporting 15 cases, what is ground truth in terms of the number of cases that actually exist? But then there's also the time differential, which is if I think about what is the world going to look like in two weeks, and this is particularly true when you're talking about exponential growth, we tend to be very linear thinkers. Mm -hmm. So we're thinking there was 15 this week, and there'll be 15 next week, and that'll be 30. And then there'll be 15 the week afterwards, and that'll be 45. And that's sort of the way that, that our minds tend to work. And when we start asking people to think exponentially in this way, I think it's very challenging. And that's another way where the observed world is not comporting well with ground truth. So ground truth is there's this exponential growth occurring, but yeah. we can't actually see it with our own eyes. And I think that that's really hard for people. Then you add on top of that, that you're asking people to think probabilistically in the sense that there's a range of possible outcomes. They all have different probabilities. And now we have this interaction of our actions actually change what those probabilities are going to be. That becomes really, really complex, right? I think it's just a really, really hard problem. And you know that what I do, you know, in terms of the Alliance for Decision Education yeah. is we've been sounding the alarm saying we're not educating people well enough to think in this way. We basically dropped probability from from the educational system until you get somewhere around college at this point, right? Yeah. So I was trying to explain it to my kids. There are ten and fourteen, and and just the idea of you know because the symptoms are asymptomatic and you can be carrying it. I said, look, I you know it's just when I came back from from that business trip. I said, look, I could be a carrier. 
I could have met somebody on the plane. I could have caught it. I went I went to a hotel. I stayed at the hotel. I could have transferred it to a person there. Could have gone to go to these meetings. I could have transferred it to the people there. I flew back on the plane. I then went to a, a banquet that night. Just even say, I just say I had it and I, I, I uh, infected 10 people. And say then those 10 people infected 10 more people. All right. And then those 100 people infected 10 more. And within five, uh, in five or six, we're talking, you know, 100,000 people infected from me, from, you. from one. That was this point where, you know, all of a sudden they're like going, oh, that's why I have to wash my hands. That's why I have to do this. And, and right. they started to get it. I don't know if they fully got it, but at least but it it's was- enough. Like we're not great with big numbers. No. But that tells them it's a big number. Yeah. Right. Like that's what we need to get across it. I actually think about, so do you guys remember, cause you're the right age for this, the shampoo commercial. And if then you they sell told two four friends. <laughs> I yes. told four people and they told four people and yep. they, or two people or whatever. And then yeah. all of a sudden the, the and they screen just is popped and popped. I and wish popped. we would just have that up. Yeah. <laughs> like we should just revive that shampoo commercial and, and just, say and that's coronavirus. Coronavirus and stuff. Because <laughs> the, the, the end not for it, you know, is is a little bit over two from what I'm I'm hearing. So like I, every I think person it that might gets be is two point uh, three to three point something point, is what they were saying. Three point something, yeah. right? Yeah. So let's say, look. When I do these things, I always like to think about the upper bound. <laughs> I was looking at the lower bound. There you go. So right. So I think the upper bound is like three point four ish. Something yeah, like I that. Think so. I think so, so I would rather, again, speaking about hedging, I would rather hedge against the upper bound. Yeah. So if it's 3.4 people like that, I want to hedge against that. Right. Yeah. So wouldn't it be great if we just had a commercial showing and they infected three people and yeah. then they infected three people and the, the, the speed with which that television screen would get filled, filled up yeah. would be so fast. It's interesting because you talk about, you know, using the upper bound and I was using the lower bound because I was trying to explain to or convince some people. And and, and what I was using was this idea that, look, even at the, the worst case or the, the best least case scenario, yeah, best case scenario. Thank you. The best case scenario, given the, the information that we have today, here's what that would look like. Yeah. And, and, and even then, it's really, really painful. I mean, the, the, the impact that that has is is significant. So you're looking at this. This is best case scenario, not even looking at worst case scenario. Yeah, so I agree. So for the purposes of getting people to act, showing people like even the best case scenario in this case is is really, really bad is, is an amazing strategy. For the purposes of thinking about how might you want to hedge against something, you want to be thinking of, of the upper. <laughs> from a policy the, perspective, right? From a is policy your, perspective, you want to think about what's what's the upper bound look like. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that I'm just really sad about is that I feel like we missed, there was a missed opportunity for what's really compared to the national debt free. And that's the thing that I'm saddest about is that yeah. there was something that we could have done that for all intents and purposes would have been free. The, the town that um, it started in, which was not Lombardy, it was, a, it was another town in Italy, mm -hmm. had, I think it was like 3,900 residents. <sighs> and so because it was 3,900 residents, they could test everybody. Mm. So they tested literally 100% of the residents in that town. And they found out, first of all, that 14% were asymptomatic. So that's alarming. But they were able to quarantine those people mm -hmm. who wouldn't have otherwise known. They would have continued walking around. Uh, so they tested everybody and then they tested them again, maybe after 10 days or something like that. And now guess what? There's no coronavirus in that town because they could isolate the virus. Now, obviously, when you get above numbers like 39, 
3,900 people, if you have the te- you can test all of them. Now, South Korea, obviously a lot more people, but they're using that strategy. So yeah. they're, te- they're testing 10,000 people a day. And what they're able to do is start to locate where the carriers are. They did this in China as well. Locate where the carriers are, get them isolated off from everybody. And now what happens is, is you start to have real cases really drastically diminish. So, you know, obviously they've got millions of people there doing the, the whole population uh, is difficult, but they're, they're doing as close to that as they possibly can get. And you're seeing a lot more success in terms of lowering the curve, right? Really controlling the curve so that you don't end up having that spike. So, and, and I think that we can think about strategies like that. Like how would you scale a strategy like that up? So if you have a town of 3,900 people, the strategy is test literally everybody. How do you how do you scale that up? We'll try to get as close to that as a solution as possible. Um, and you're a lot better off. But, you know, obviously, in order to do that, you actually have to be, you know, South Korea is testing 10,000 people a day. Yeah. So um, so they're able to get control of it a little bit better. What do you think is uh, of the new habits that are being created, Annie? What do you think might last beyond the crisis period? Gosh, that's so hard. Let me I'll take some educated guesses at that. Um I, I think the hand washing is going to continue. I don't think we're a huge nation of hand washers before this, but I think that we're going to, you know, I think we're going to have a generation of people who wash like surgeons. They're going to be ready for surgery. Um, I, uh, so. I think Purell is going to do really well. So I, I think that that kind of stuff, just like understanding, like when you're touching other people, I think we will go back to shaking hands eventually, but it's going to be shake hands, put Purell, you know, let's go. That would be my guess. Um, I don't know, just because of the nature of Americans in general, if masks, I don't think masks are going to be something that takes hold. I think that we're, first of all, too individualistic for that. And second of all, so much of the communication is around, like, if you're sick, masks are great. But if you're not sick, it's, it's not so helpful. So I don't think that's going to change. And I, I, don't, I don't think that standing six feet away from people is going to change. For me, I, I, my guess is that hand washing. But, but the other thing that I think is going to change, which I think is really, really important, is that from my understanding, one of the scenarios that occurs over the next 18 months is periods of being out and then periods of social distancing. So these waves. Mm-hmm. And what I do think is true is that people are going to get it a lot earlier, you know, as people are saying, okay, get back in your house. Okay. You know, I think that people are going to be like, yeah, this isn't a hoax. Let's, let's get inside. And I think that that's really going to help because obviously the sooner that everybody kind of gets inside, the shorter the period that you have to be inside. Yeah. So I I do think that that, that is going to change because we are going to be more attuned to the point of the the last disaster that just occurred, which is going to be this one right here. Uh, and I think that's really going to change norms around how people respond to the call for social distancing. And there's going to be less like you're stupid. And yeah. I think that's going to be true of millennials as well, because millennials, I, I don't think, and this isn't millennials, and I'm talking about the people on spring break, right? right. So um, I don't think they really understand that this might affect their parents or their grandparents or their aunts, their uncles, those kinds of things. I think they're very much like I had my spring break. I'm not canceling it. I'm not personally at high risk. And so I'm going to do this. But I think that's going to realize. And I think that you're going to see behavior that's much more uh, collective Mm -hmm. for the collective good 
from the younger generation once they actually understand kind of what the consequences of that are. And I think that it's kind of, it's a sad thing, but I think that they're going to have negative, to. And, and these are the negative consequences specifically, right? Yeah, that you yeah, think will, yeah. re, will influence their behaviors. Huh? Well, because yeah. it creates certainty, right? So right now it's like, there's a whole bunch of different things that could happen and it's not clear and maybe I'm not going to get sick. And yeah. uh, there's a whole bunch of different ways that things could turn out, but it's a lot different once you've actually observed it. Yeah. Um, in the same sense that the numbers had to get high enough in order for people to really take it seriously um, and stop saying this is just hyped and whatever. And 15 certainly wasn't that number. Yeah. Right. So it had to get high enough that there was enough certainty around it that people felt comfortable with changing their behavior. So, you know, all of those spring breakers, because we know statistically some of them will not fare well, right? So we yeah. just know that from a statistical standpoint, I don't wish that on anyone. I, I hope they all survive. I hope everyone survives. I hope all their grandparents survive. I hope all their parents survive. I hope all their aunts and uncles survive. But we know statistically that that's not gonna happen. And when they start realizing that, like my friend got sick and ended up in the ICU, maybe yeah, this it, isn't so safe. And maybe it was because of me. So, all right, I have, I have one last question for you. So wh why did people make a run on toilet paper? Right. So it's, again, it's the last disaster. So, <laughs> so, uh, so let's talk about New York. Okay. So New York, Houston, these are all true weather disasters. Those, those right. are the Hurricanes. things that we've been yep. observing. Irma, you know, so on and so forth. In those things, it's very hard to get supplies in. Things are flooded. There might be no electricity. Uh, stores can't open because people can't, you know, or you can't get to them. And then you run out of toilet paper. So when you're thinking about what are the lists of things that you would want to have on hand for a hurricane, bottled water is yeah. one uh, because water might be contaminated. Toilet paper is one because supply chains will be disrupted for some period of time where you need to have toilet paper. You may not be able to get to the store or whatever. And so those are the kinds of things that you're going to have on hand besides the food. Right. Uh, but in this particular case, at least not for now, it could happen in the future. Supply chains aren't really that disruptive. Yeah. So you can get toilet paper and you can get our water is not contaminated. So you can get water out of the tap. But I do think it's that same thing. It's like Asia, which has not experienced the hurricanes in the same way that we have. They were ready for SARS. Mm -hmm. They were ready for something that looked like SARS. So, you, you know, they're all walking around with masks. They've got lots and lots of hospital beds. They have fever rooms, as you pointed out, uh, all sorts of really strict quarantine in place, ramped up for testing at any second. Like they're ready for that one. We're ready for Irma. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. when people are like, oh, a really bad thing's going to happen. People go look at what's my disaster list. Like what? And that's what that was coming from. People were like, you need toilet paper. Well, and then, you know, for, for people in the Midwest where it still happens and we don't experience, you know, a, a hurricane, I think there's that herd mentality. It's like, oh, everybody's, you know, going out and getting toilet paper. I, I got to go get toilet paper. And it's more of the it's going to be out before I get it. So I better right. go get it. Right. Yeah. Well so. then there, yeah, there's certainly some, it's a little game theory problem, right? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so you get, you get a little game theory problem in there as well. Like if everybody's doing it, then I, if I wait too long, I won't even be able to get one roll. Yeah. Uh, and also there were, there, there are just, there are lists that are available online. Like what's your disaster preparedness supposed to be. And obviously toilet paper and bottled water was on there. So, yeah. um, so I think that that's probably where that was coming from. Yeah. You know, but but at least for now, you know, Amazon is still operating, so you should be able to get toilet paper delivered to you. I that that being said, I would still make sure I have some on hand, 
not not 20 million rolls, but uh, yeah. just in case, just thinking about, you know, keep your eye out in case it looks like supply chains might get disrupted, then you would want to treat it more like you're in a hurricane situation. The, the interesting thing, we, we, we talked with Christian Hunt earlier, who who does some uh, risk uh, elements and different things. And he's the, the, the one thing that was interesting that he said about this question, because we asked him as well, was there's other things that are more important if you are actually in a situation where you can't get out and you, you, you grab those, you know. You can still defecate, and there are other alternatives to using toilet paper to, to yeah. do that. And so, you know, from a from an actual like necessary need, and I hear your point of yes, it's the last uh, you know uh, accident or disaster, and, and that's the way that we do it. But it really doesn't make rational sense if we we actually think <laughs> about it. But it was well, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that. What I would say is like one of the things that I always try to be careful with by by talking about things being rational or not rational is is to take into account what someone's values are. That's true, right? And most of us have have lived a life where we can use toilet paper. Yep. And the other things that you can do are not nearly as convenient. They're you know, but um, yeah, no, but I I think it is like I think particularly in these times it, it's a it's a trade off, right? It's like how much you use. Like, what is the the capital that you're spending, whatever capital that might be, which is not just money, um, in order to have toilet paper versus, like, what are your values in terms of feeling like this is the normal thing I do and I don't have to veer from what I normally do. And so I I actually would not be in the camp of saying that that was irrational behavior, Hmm. personally. Um, Buying 30 30 packets of it and... Well, that might be that might be uh, misestimating what the risk is. <laughs> but assuming that that was your estimate of what the risk is, you know, might you might be, you know, again, we're talking about subjective probabilities, and people are going to be. The thing I don't want to ever do is say if you knew what the objective truth was, here is what rational behavior is. So the fact that you didn't act in that way means that you're not rational. It's like, well, look, these these things are subjective, and there's all sorts of information that you don't have. And some people aren't going to be be calculating those probabilities so well. So what I want to know is what was your calculation of the risk? Right. Because if I understand what your calculation of the risk was, you may have actually acted perfectly rational in the face of your calculation. That just means your your model, right, right? your val, right, what you value. And it may just be that your model of the world was kind of off, but that's a wholly different problem, right? That's a completely different problem than are you being rational? That's right. True. Where you can get into irrationality is like, look, the at the worst case scenario is you need like 10 rolls. And for some reason, you decide to go get 300. Right. Yeah. I mean, assuming that you're not going to be the guy with the gr- garage full of Purell and you just want the 300 for yourself. <laughs> that's maybe that's a little weird in terms of your spending of the capital. But but I assume, you know, I'm assuming that those people were acting rational given what they thought the world was going to look like. Let's right. put it that way. Very, very well said. So We so want to thank you, as always, for your time, for your insight, for your passion, for your critical thinking, for just being you. Oh, well, right back at you. And I am so sorry that we didn't get to have Lila with us, who... We'll, we'll make it happen. So we will We will make that happen at some point, and, and it will be fantastic. Yeah, and... Welcome to the special edition Grooving Session, where Tim and I groove on some of the key ideas and concepts that were sparked by our conversation with Annie Duke. All right, Tim, what did Annie spark with you in this conversation? 
so, so much. It was a great conversation. We covered lots and lots of stuff. Way fun. But let's start with hedging. Oh, hedging. Okay. So for me, when Annie gave the analogy that hedging is like insurance, that crystallized it for me. Yeah. It's like you don't you don't buy insurance. You don't call up the insurance agency and say, oh, uh, I think that my house is on fire, so I better get some insurance. <laughs> no, you actually plan for it. You get ahead of the curve. You actually say, I'm going to be intentional about something that hopefully won't happen. Hopefully, I'll never have to use it. And yet, I'm going to buy the insurance anyway, just in case. And this idea that we are not good at hedging, right? She said that people really don't understand hedging very well. And the right. idea that we we don't like it as well. And I think part of that goes into this idea that we're paying for something now for this potential payoff in the future, even though... We don't know if we're ever, ever going to have to, you know, get paid off by that hedge. Well, and this is akin to hyperbolic dis- discounting then, right? Because we're we're looking out at that future and we're saying that's just worth less than the things that are happening right now. Well, and part of it is the, the pain of paying right now. The pain of sure, paying it's immediate. today, right? Yeah. Because that's immediate. That's a loss aversion. So that $50 that I'm paying today for that insurance or that you know, $100 or that $1,000, whatever it would be, is now. It's immediate. It's a loss. It's it's something I can't go and to the store and buy some books, or I can't do something else with that $50, and that's gone. Now, with coronavirus, it's this idea that we didn't hedge enough, particularly the, the government did not hedge enough in advance of this. And I thought that was yes. a really interesting piece, particularly as she related it to this idea of a free roll. And basically the government yeah. could have hedged with a free roll because the amount that they would have had to spend to get, you know, increased testing kits or maybe say, let's order, you know, 5,000, 10,000 ventilators, let's do some of the stuff is so minute compared to the overall budget that it literally is a decimal misplace. You know? But it gets more expensive the longer you wait. It, well, it gets it more expensive. Way, yeah. way expensive. More expensive in terms of lives uh, impacted and, and lost and the economic uh, impact that this is having across the nation and across the world. I mean, when you have to shelter at home because the virus has gotten out of control, because we didn't have enough testing kits to test enough people in order to quarantine them uh, because they had the virus in advance, then you're running into these you know, huge costs that have come up and are taking place as what we're seeing right now. It's also very real costs when you think about the cost of what these uh, masks, for instance, the um, the physicians and healthcare providers need to wear, uh, apparently used to cost less than a dollar. Yeah. And now because of, of the tremendous demand can be going for as much as $7.50. Yeah. And this is crazy, right? And so this is where if the government would have been buying them all along, they could have been buying them for less than a buck a piece. Yeah. So now, now that lack of planning is really getting in the way. She also brought up this element that we regret hedges that don't come, uh, that don't pay out. So she, Mm -hmm. she used the example of getting the tent for your wedding. And if it doesn't, you know, in case it rains, (laughs) because you want to have an outdoor wedding and if it doesn't rain, 
you regret that purchase of that tent. And I think there's something that goes into that regret. We, we anticipate that regret that we're going to have. We anticipate the likelihood that we are going to have to use this hedge. And I think one of the aspects around coronavirus that happened early on, uh, and part of the reason that maybe some of these hedges didn't happen is we thought about the regret that would happen um, from that. But we also looked at this as the likelihood of something happening. And so the likelihood of a fatality of this is still relatively low when you look at the larger scale for any individual, right? I mean, granted, there are higher higher at risk populations, but in general, it's it's under 2%, I believe at this point. Uh, again, that changes every day, so don't, don't quote me on that. But the fact of the matter is that the communication that went out was this is really not that likely to happen to us. And so to hedge, you have to believe that there's a likelihood of something happening. And I think that played into this. Oftentimes, this story continues to come back to planning and getting ahead of the curve, saying we anticipate that even though there are very small percentages of likelihood of some things happening, it really would pay off big, big time if we made a hedge right now and made an investment in something that even though it has a small likelihood of occurring, could still have a huge potential for negative impact. On so us. Annie in in Thinking in Bets talks about doing pre-mortems, right? Where oh, you, yeah. You, yeah. you anticipate potential outcomes and then you look back from those and what did you do in order to achieve those outcomes? And I think that's something to, to this, right? The likelihood is really small, but the consequences could be disastrous, right? It's those right. black swan kind of elements that come into play. The The facet that I think is really interesting in this, not really interesting, I think there's a, there's, there's a part of this that's really interesting to look back on this and say, why didn't we place the hedges uh, either as individuals and or as a society, uh, governmental pieces. But now there's an opportunity for us to say, what are the hedges I need to put in place today? Mm-hmm looking forward one month, three right. months, six months, a year, what are some of those things that I should be doing pre-mortems on to know? Because as you said, hedges get more expensive or even impossible to do uh, as time goes on and, right. and the closer that it comes. So we have to start looking in advance. And so one of the things that I started to do with with my wife, and this was actually as a result of both Barry Ritholt's interview and and Annie's interview, you know, Barry talked about planning and putting plans in place for when things happen, is we started to think about, all right, so if this goes on for three months, if this goes on for six months, what are some of the things that we need to be doing today in order to say three months from now, we're not going, oh, I wish we would have started doing this three months ago or six months. <laughs> right. looking like we, If we right. only would have done this, you know, six months ago, we would have been things so be much better, better now. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things that I'm taking from this. You also had some other thoughts uh, about about this, right? Well, so, I had amazing, the, about right? the whole conversation. Yeah, about the whole conversation. The the idea of the last disaster syndrome. Oh, isn't that such a great image? Oh, I, well, it just makes sense. And her idea, you know, again, using that as the rationale for people buying toilet paper. I'm going, oh yeah, that makes sense because our last disaster 
in the United States is typically this, you know, it's hurricanes. And so then you, you look back to whatever that last disaster was mm -hmm. to assess how to respond in the current or upcoming disaster. I think that goes to explain a lot of our response, a lot of Europe's response and our response relative to some of the responses that you see happening in in Asian countries where there's been a, a probably a, a more concerted and better effort at containing the coronavirus to some degree. And again, that's as you know, changing all the time. But you look at at, at uh uh, Taiwan, um, you look at uh, Korea, South Korea, you look at Singapore, you look at those where their last disaster was around, you know, was a, a virus, was a virus, was, was medical, yeah. and they had plans in place and, and understood that, you know, that their reference point was that last virus. Um, it's also, for me, it's also worth pointing out that while there are some analogical things that we can take from this. It's not what we're going through right now is not World War II. No. It's not 9-11. No. It's 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 not the last hurricane. It's not AIDS. No. This is wholly unique in so many ways that we have that it's gotta be hard for all of us to get our head around something that was a ant anticipatable and we we didn't uh, get our uh, hedge properly to get ready for it. And here we are in something that really isn't all that similar to all these major disasters that we've had in the last century. And yet it's impacted us severely. I mean, yes. I look at this as the amount of actual behavior change that this is driving uh, across the board. And there is nothing like this in my lifetime. I mean, nothing no. that is no. that is comparable. And so you look at that and you're going, uh, the impact that this has had and to the degree that we we did not hedge for this um, because some of those aspects I think is really, really quite uh, insightful as to how bad we are at hedging and how bad we are, you know, and some of the reasons is we compared this to the last disaster we had and this is not comparable. And so it's able right. to identify what are some of those really impactful things that could be coming down the line and we just have to prepare for them better. So. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about Annie's comment about how it's okay to make decisions when we're unsure. Right. Well, this whole topic of making decisions in uncertainty. So, yeah, making decisions when you're unsure. What you know? What what caught you at that? It's good to be reminded that it is okay to make decisions under uncertainty as long as it's paired with and we'll continue to adapt our decisions as we get new information as the, you know this this came out in our conversation with James Brewer about continuing to learn and continuing to adapt and Liz Fosslein talked about being intentional i feel like this all kind of ties together in this story of go ahead and make a decision and be open to continuing uh, to make changes and updating that as we go. Right. And and Annie made the the distinction that, you know, the more certainty you get, it's a, a cost of time. And some decisions need to have a time horizon that is much faster than our ability to get that information. And so we just have to make a decision with uncertainty and we have to feel okay about making that decision with uncertainty. And yes, we could be wrong. We could make a wrong assumption. We mm -hmm. could not know all of the underlying causes and factors that go into play and 
it may not be the optimal solution, but there is this idea that we need to take action. And if we have to take action quick, it comes at the cost of knowledge and certainty. Right. Uh, she went on to say that the world that we observe is not the world that exists. Oh, that right. I love that. It's not the ground truth, right? It, right. It's not the right. truth that's on the ground. And and which gets into, and, and again, it's kind of a poetic way of saying this, but you know, we don't know a whole bunch of things that are going on all the time, particularly when we're dealing with humans and we're dealing uh, in subjective cases. She brought up the idea of, you know, chess is a perfectly knowable thing, uh, yeah. but the rest of life isn't, right? Very complex. Very complex. And, and yet, it makes me think of Danny Kahneman's comment that what you see is all there is, that we are so good as humans of ignoring and, <laughs> you know, just if it's not in front of us, then it's not real. Yeah. And we... And, and this is one of the opportunities we have for change, to change the way that we live our lives it, it, because of this crisis, is to start thinking about, guess what? There is more out there than what's straight in front of our faces. Right. And and, and, I, and I'll go back even to, to our ability to exponentially think, right? And, and our math skills. And so, we do these back of the napkins mathematical equations and go, oh, it's 2%. That doesn't, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'll take that risk oh, or right. less than that. And we don't understand the, the larger scale consequences. Like we talked with, with Rod Wagner on is that it's the cumulative probability. And then when you multiply that by the number of people in society, the exponential math that goes, that's associated with that is something that we're not good at. So again, that viewpoint of what you know what we see is is what reality is you know if if our heads aren't doing that math then our reality is and taking that into consideration as well yeah the difference between uh, 0.1% mortality rate with uh, influenza a and a 1% even a 1% mortality rate with coronavirus is the difference between 63,000 people dying and 630,000 people dying yeah it's huge so it it may sound like uh 0.1% 1% whatever hundreds of thousands of people's lives are at, at stake with those uh, small changes in numbers yeah if you think about how we make decisions. And the fact of the matter is, is you and I do this, We, everybody listening does this, is we make decisions oftentimes very quickly. It's our system one taking place. Those decisions are influenced by biases, by heuristics, by the context that we're in, by what we've heard right before it, how we're feeling that day, all of the emotional aspects that go into our lives. And sometimes those decisions are fantastic. In situations that require non-status quo decisions, they're they're not as as well suited for those that that quick thinking. And we and they're actually, hard. And yeah. they're hard. And yeah. you know, I mean, that was a whole another aspect of you know her talk that was interesting is the status quo versus non-status quo and the impact that those have and how hard it is to do non-status quo and the two by two grid she talked about but it's terrific yeah all of that comes into play when we're making these decisions in this world where even today you know the reality is changing hour by hour day by day and we have to stay on top of things, and that's hard. It's both it's emotionally draining uh, as well as just cognitively hard to keep updating our 
our belief sets and our knowledge around this because we have to though because there is the consequences of this are so potentially dire and we need to do that Thank you for listening to the special episode of Behavior Grooves. We hope that you found it interesting and insightful. If you liked it, please let others know. We think that the topic is important and maybe we can help in educating people about how behavioral science can help us all out in this current craziness that we are going through. Also, please let us know if you have any thoughts or ideas that would be helpful or that we could share. You can reach us through the Connect tab on the Behavioral Grooves website at www.behavioralgrooves.com or through Twitter. I'm at T. Houlihan and Kurt is at What Motivates. We really do love hearing from you. And this topic is one that spurs lots of emotions and thought. As part of our mission, we want to expand and inform the community of people who think about positively applying behavioral science to life. One way that happens is through leaving reviews. If you think this podcast is beneficial and should grow, we would really appreciate to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast server you use. It only takes a few minutes and goes a long way to boost us in the algorithms that are used to generate search results. Also, please check out the show notes. We are linking to a number of resources articles, podcasts, newsletters that we vetted to bring good facts and ideas around COVID-19 and the coronavirus, its impact and ways that we can help slow down the spread. There is a lot of information that's being pushed out to everyone each day, and we are weeding through it to find good stuff so that you don't have to. We truly appreciate you listening. Now go out and wash your hands. Mm -hmm.